Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through to chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lauren. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Gareth. Yeah, appreciate it. I don't know. We're just generally not very good at that. It's okay. We don't have to be good at it, I suppose. Um, good morning, everyone. My name's Thomas. Um, I am part of the eldership team here in, uh, in Village. Last week before we start Advent, which is always good fun, um, just this little one-off in Philippians, um, hopefully, uh, prayerfully praying that this will be a, uh, an encouragement to us uh, this morning. Um, I don't work for the church here. I work for a charity called Sustrans, um, whose their whole thing is about making it easier for people to walk and cycle. Um, sometimes people think that means like cycling in a sporting kind of way. Um, I don't own any Lycra and I don't plan on it. I don't look good in it and no one should ever have to see me in it. That's not the kind of cycling I'm interested in. I ride my bike to get from A to B, right? Um, one little skiff of rain and I feel like I am a hero for just getting through it, getting home. Um, it's an altogether different thing to like sporting cycling. Um, I don't know your opinion of cycling, um, but arguably it's the most tough, one of the toughest sports out there. Um, there are crashes in almost every race. In 2013, in the opening stage of the Tour de France, uh, a Welsh rider called Geraint Thomas was involved in a huge crash, and he fractured his pelvis. But instead of giving up and being like a normal person and going to the hospital and like resting, he kept racing. The next day, he was so banjaxed, he had to be actually lifted onto his bike. He couldn't get onto his bike. He had to be lifted and hoisted onto it. In the same crash, a German rider called Marcel Kittel came down. He actually lost, lost consciousness. He had a concussion. He had a contusion on his left lung. He had bruising and a deep cut on his elbow. But the next day, he was still back helping his team win a time trial. These guys are like, like terminators. They just don't give up. And today, as we look at this part of um, Philippians, um, the Apostle Paul is writing this church, uh, writing to this church family in Philippi, and this is his message. He is talking about not giving up. There's something about the Christian life that requires steadfastness, a desire to keep walking forward with the Lord no matter what. The Apostle Paul calls it standing firm with the Lord, and he sums it up in the beginning of chapter 4. Listen to what he says. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. 
Paul is full of deep, deep affection for his church, he, for this church. He loves them. He longs to be with them. He calls them his crown. That's how much these people mean to him. And because of his love for them, he wants them to stand firm in the Lord. Standing firm is one of Paul's primary concerns. All throughout this letter, he writes to the, fam, to the church family in Philippi. Paul is actually writing this letter from prison in Rome, so he's got a, he kind of knows a little bit about keeping the faith and standing firm. And he's writing to this church to encourage them to keep going in the faith no matter what comes along. Way back at the start of the letter, in chapter 1, uh, verse 27, Paul gives him the same command. He says, only let, your manner, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for faith, for the faith of the gospel. Paul's message is don't give up, don't be pushed off course, keep pursuing Jesus, stand firm. Sometimes when we come to the Bible, we read a particular text and we maybe need to do a bit of work to get to the original meaning because language changes. Uh, not here, this one's pretty straightforward. The phrase stand firm is a really good translation of what Paul is trying to say. Stand firm, don't be moved, persevere. As I've thought about this passage, it's made me think about the kind of trees that you see up the North Coast or any coast really. Up there with the wind coming off the Atlantic Ocean, it could be pretty strong. And the closer you get to the coast, the closer you realize that these trees have a peculiar, strange shape. They're all bent away from the sea. All the branches are on one side. Because for years and years, battered by the Atlantic wind, even though they're bent over, even though they've taken on this strange shape, there's branches on like half of the tree, they're still there. They haven't been moved. They've stood firm. I think Paul is saying that as followers of Jesus, we need to be something like these trees. No matter how strong the wind is, we stand firm. No matter how much of a battering we take from the elements, we're not moved. We persevere. This is what you might call a holy stubbornness. Uh, my wife tells me that I'm pretty stubborn. I would just suggest that's the kind of thing that a stubborn person would say, so maybe she's the stubborn one. Um, but this is a holy kind of stubbornness. It's different. It's a refusing to be moved because our sure hope is in the Lord. This is what we are called to. Like those cyclists who refuse to quit the race, so we refuse to ever quit on Jesus. Um, and for, for the rest of this sermon, um, I will be hoping to answer the questions of how do we do this? How do we persevere and not give up? How do we stand firm? So, as always, three little ways to help us. You'll be ha happy to know. Um, first one then, we stand firm in the Lord by following Christ-like examples. Let's look again at verse 17. We stand firm in the Lord by following Christ-like examples. Verse 17, brothers and sisters, join me. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I think when I was younger, I, would have, I read this and thought Paul was being a little bit arrogant. Like, who's this guy think he is? Imitate me? Should you not be telling me to imitate Jesus rather than any other, you know, human? Um, 
But here's the thing. Paul isn't being arrogant. He's being a leader. Paul actually quite often tells people to imitate him. But the key to that command is that he's imitating Christ so that others can follow him as he follows Jesus. That's what he says in, when he writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. One of the best and most beautiful features of the church family is that we have more mature brothers and sisters who can show us how to follow Jesus through their actions. It's part of the brilliance in God's design for the church and one of his kindest gifts to us. This is how people learn, by following the examples of others. It's how kids learn. I see this in my own kids all the time. My little girl Eden is four, and she loves copying her brother, often to his annoyance, really. If he wants to watch cartoons, she wants to watch cartoons. If he wants to go outside and play on his bike, Eden wants to go outside and play on her bike. She copies the phrases he uses, the, the, the words that he says. This is how we learn. Another way to think of it is apprenticeship. My dad has been working with BT for more than 40 years. And although he went to college, first of all, to learn all the intricacies of, I don't really know what he does, electrical, communication, engineering stuff. He learned that in college, but when he began with BT, he started an apprenticeship. He spent time following the example of someone else so that he could learn how to do this trade properly. And this is true for us too. We are called to apprentice ourselves to Jesus, but also to follow the examples that we have in the body of Christ. God has wisely ordained that in his family, we have the examples, we have examples of faith of other brothers and sisters that we can follow. And I don't just mean older in age. I mean older and more mature in the faith. There are some young people who are mature in their walks with Jesus. And there are some older people who are less mature in their walks with Jesus. In the church, though, God gives us, these, gives us this family. We are saved into a family so that we can learn how to follow Jesus. That's what discipleship is. This is why Christianity following Jesus doesn't make sense as a solo project. It's a communal endeavor. Scripture just doesn't make sense if you read it through the eyes of an individual. But discipleship isn't just, we need, we need to understand that discipleship isn't just meeting someone for coffee once a week and doing a Bible study. It's not just turning up on a Sunday. These things are good to do, but in the New Testament, discipleship is so much more. Imagine if Paul had just met Timothy in a cafe once a week. He didn't. He took Timothy with him. He let him into his life. He invited Timothy to observe, to follow his example. Because biblical discipleship is following the whole life examples of older brothers and sisters as they walk with Jesus. Discipleship is about spending time in the everyday lives of our brothers and sisters so you can see how they follow Jesus in those circumstances how they follow Jesus maybe in their marriage, in their parenting, and how they get on at work as an employer or an employee in their social action. How are they with their neighbors? How do, how do you follow Jesus? What does it look like following Jesus in terms of caring for the poor? How do they celebrate and how do they grieve? How do they party, but also how do they suffer? 
We need to learn all these things, and these don't just come from like a textbook. We, we learn this by following others, by imitating those who are imitating Christ. I th- in my own life, I think of Lucas and Sue Parks who planted Village Church. If you don't know them, um, you probably have heard them talked about. Ten years ago, when Laura and I got married, um, and we started to get to know them, when Lucas and Sue planted Village, they opened their lives for people to journey with them. And in the 10 years that we spent with him, I can't count how many meals, how many coffees, beers, walks we've shared. One of the most formative times in my life was watching how Lucas and Sue suffered while he dealt with cancer. Struggling with the realities of cancer, but still believing that God was good. Still believing that Jesus is who he says he is. And then the way they lived their life allowed us to see that, and that was incredibly formative for me to learn what it means to suffer, even though that wasn't me suffering. We learn how to follow Jesus by imitating how more mature brothers and sisters follow Jesus. So Paul says, imitate, imitate me and imitate Timothy and Epaphroditus. Those guys are good examples of how to follow Jesus. And he says, imitate the leaders in your church who imitate Jesus. This is how it works. The leadership of the church sets a culture of being good examples. That's scary for me. But it doesn't just end there. It starts with leadership, but doesn't stop with them. In the life of the church, there will always be people whose example you are following and those who are following your example. This is the way God has ordained it to be. The Christian life is a life of being an example. And it's through being disciples that we make disciples. So people who pursue Christ produce people who pursue Christ. People who pursue Christ produce people who pursue Christ. So now think about your own walk with the Lord. As you follow Jesus, as you stand firm in the Lord, who are you imitating? Because you're imitating somebody. Whose example is it? And think about this, because we're not, like, we're not kids anymore, we're not youth. There are younger Christians who are imitating you, so what kind of example are you being to them? Your lives influences someone's opinion of Jesus. If, you, if, if, if someone saw you at home with your kids, would they see a good example? If they saw how you spend your money, would they see a good example? If they saw your browser history, would they see a good example? Paul says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. We stand firm in the Lord by following Christ-like examples. Secondly, then, we stand firm in the Lord by walking in the way of the cross. Verses 18 and 19 gives us a warning of what happens when we don't walk in the way of the cross. And I don't get to preach that often, and I wish I didn't have to preach warnings because they're not fun. They're just not, but they are in Scripture, and we have to deal with them, and we have to take them seriously. So let's just get through this. Paul says here in verse 18, for many of whom, for many of whom I have often told you, and now I tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So what's going on here? Well, some people think Paul is talking about Jewish Christians who want to add to the gospel of Jesus, that 
um, yes, you need to believe Jesus to be saved, but you also need to keep the Jewish laws. Some other people think that um, there are people who used to be part of the church here in Philippi who have walked away from the church and from Jesus. Others think that these enemies of the cross are those who agree with the message of the gospel, at least in their minds, but their lives live a different story. They would be the kind of people who think, well, I'm saved by grace so I can do what I want. I think it's probably the third group that Paul's talking about, but in many ways, this doesn't really matter because the message is clear. You either walk in the way of Jesus, following the example of the apostles, or you walk as an enemy of the cross. This is God's warning to us this morning, church. You either live in the way of the cross or you live as an enemy of the cross. This is a stark choice that we all have to face up to. If you're not living a life shaped by the gospel of Jesus, you are an enemy of the cross. Because if the gospel isn't shaping the way you live, you haven't really grasped the message of the gospel. See, the gospel, it's not just the doorway into Christianity. It's a message that shapes and forms the the entire life of the Christian. And it sustains us until Jesus comes again. Back in chapter 1 in verse 27, Paul brings, where Paul brings uh, this idea of standing firm up for the first time, he, what does he say? He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This means that we are to live like citizens of heaven. Live like we belong to a different kingdom, one that, uh, the kingdom of God. We don't really get that in the English translation here. Excuse me, but in the original language, Paul uses a phrase that literally means whatever happens, because you are citizens of heaven, live in a way that is worthy of the good news of Christ. Okay, so now we're getting places. If, if we want to know if something is worthy of the gospel, if something is something walking in the way of the cross, we just have to ask ourselves, is this acceptable in the kingdom of God? Are my actions and behaviors, thoughts or words, are these reflecting the kingdom of God? See, church, in calling us to walk in the way of the cross, Paul is saying that the calling of the Christian is to live a life of heaven here on earth. We're to live the values of the kingdom of heaven here in the kingdom of earth. Not just turning away from sin, turning away from lust and anger and uh, like not declaring stuff on your tax return or not looking at stuff on websites or, or not having anger in your heart, but prioritizing and pursuing the good, pr- pushing towards grace, living lives that, that bear the fruit of the Spirit. When we examine our lives, when we take a step back and reflect, can we say, can we identify how we live? Does it, are we, do we look like we're living as citizens of heaven? Again, this is a stark warning for us all. We're either living in the way of the cross or living as enemies of the cross. That phrase is, is uh, maybe unfamiliar to you, so let's break it down a little bit. Paul gives us a picture of what an enemy of the cross is like. It's in verse 19 four little phrases. Firstly, their end is destruction. They have no eternal hope. They're heading towards the wrath of God. Their ultimate end is eternal separation from God. And this is the end for everyone who rejects Jesus. The way of Jesus leads to life, 
But rejecting Jesus leads to death. Secondly, their God is in their belly. Now, this isn't necessarily talking about food or gluttony, not saying that they're fat. Paul is saying that these people who reject Jesus and are enemies of the cross are self-indulgent. The only needs they think of are their own physical needs. Whatever desire, they just go for it. They just they sleep with who they want. They use whatever substances they want. They seek only the pleasures of this world. And what's interesting is what, about this is what Paul says next. Living just to serve their bodily appetites leads to shameful behavior, but there's, they don't care. They glory in their shame, in verse 19. Enemies of the cross reverse the moral order of God. They brag about sexual conquest. They want everyone to know how drunk they got last weekend or what happened whenever they got high, how, how much pride they take in what they earn and how much they spent on frivolous stuff. They revel in how good their material lives can be or are. That, that, that kind of thing, basically Instagram. Fourthly, Paul says that their minds are set on earthly things. This is the reason for all their behavior. It's the reason why they glory in their shame. It's the reason why they're driven by bodily desires. And it's ultimately the reason why they're heading for destruction. They've rejected the cross of Jesus. Their minds are on earthly things. At the center of their being, where they make decisions, where, where they find direction, where right and wrong is figured out, they only have, them, they only have their minds on earthly things. For them, the temporal, the, the, the physical is all there is. This is the warning. This is who enemies of the cross are like. And this is what awaits us if we reject the cross of Jesus. This is why we have to stand firm in the Lord. Standing firm in the Lord, you can read back over that verse and Living the opposite way is a good indication that you're standing firm in the Lord. For those of us who stand firm in the Lord and live in the way of the cross, our minds are not set on earthly things, but on heavenly things. We're empowered by the work of the Spirit who is alive in us to set our minds on heavenly things and pursue those things. We don't glory in our shame. We're, we're grateful that our shame has been taken off us, removed by Jesus on the cross, and now we glory in Him. We're not driven by our own needs and desires. We're driven, again, the, the Holy Spirit is at work in us, and we're then driven by the need and desire to please God and to serve others. And finally, our end isn't in destruction. It's in eternal life. It's in the presence of God in perfect peace and wholeness and goodness forever. So this is our choice every day. Are we going to walk in the way of the cross, or are we going to walk as an enemy of the cross? It's in, in self-sacrificing death of Jesus that we see the life of the cross, way of the cross, summed up perfectly. On the cross, Jesus met our destruction. The end that should have been ours became his. And he did this so that we wouldn't have to face destruction. On the cross, Jesus wasn't driven by his own desires and needs. He put himself last. He put the needs of the sinful fallen world, including you and me, before his own in fact, in the garden, in the night before he died, he prayed that if there was any way the death on the cross could be taken from him, he asked for it, but he still relented and said, not my will, but your will be done, God. As he was hanging on the cross, beaten and mocked, he took our shame and displayed the full righteousness of God. And in that moment, Jesus' mind wasn't set on earthly things, but on the fulfillment of God's redemption plan.
Jesus died for enemies of the cross. That's what we were before we were saved by him. But as enemies of the cross, in his great love, he died for them and made a way for for us to be reconciled. And this is our attitude. This is the life of the cross, the cruciform way. We sacrifice ourselves for others, our minds set on heavenly things, dying not just for people that, who, who, who like us, but for our enemies. That's a life worthy of the gospel. Let's not reject the cross of Jesus. Let's stand firm in the Lord and walk in the way of the cross. So we, we stand firm by following Christ-like examples and by living in the way of the cross. Thirdly, and finally, we stand firm in the Lord by looking towards his second coming. Look again to verse 20 and 21. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform a body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I've already talked about this, how back in chapter one, Paul linked his call to stand firm, this idea of citizenship, and he does it again. We stand firm because we are citizens of heaven. Why does he say this, though? What's the point? Well, Philippi, a little geography tidbit for you. If you didn't know, it wasn't anywhere near Rome. It was an ideal Roman city, but it was in Greece. It it was like a mini Rome situated in Greece. And the, the people there took pride in being loyal subjects to Rome and the Roman Empire. And back in those days, the emperor didn't like you to have allegiance to anyone else. He was Lord. He was the guy in charge couldn't say that anybody else was Lord. So basically, the emperor was the ultimate authority. But Paul says, you guys in the church, we are different. We're not under his ultimate authority. There's only one Lord, and his name is Jesus. And so don't live like this Roman Empire is all there is, because someday Jesus is coming back and will prove once and for all that he is Lord. So no matter what comes up, no matter how much they persecute, you stand firm. Paul loved talking, loves talking about this idea that uh, Christ is above all things, that all things are subject to him. Listen to what he says in Colossians 1.19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All things being reconciled to Jesus. Like total redemption, not one molecule outside of his rule and reign. And he's achieved that, that status through the blood of his cross. See, I think sometimes, maybe most of the time, we think of Jesus' death in terms of the individual. My sins have been forgiven. I have been united with Christ. I have been saved. I have eternal life. I will be with God in the new creation. He is making me a new creation. The Holy Spirit dwells in me. These things are all good and right and true and should be celebrated and talked about But if we think that the scope of redemption won by Jesus on the cross is only about the forgiveness of sins, we are undervaluing his work. It goes beyond that. You see, since the the fall, all of creation has just been moving away from Christ. 
But through the blood of the cross, Jesus reconciled all things, including you and I, to himself. So the scope of Jesus' redemption is the scope of everything that has ever existed. And by trusting Jesus for salvation, you are brought into this total redemption plan that Jesus has won for himself. Part of what happens when we get saved is that we recognize that Jesus is Lord, that all things have, to be, have been put under his feet. All things. And we become citizens of a society and kingdom of which he is king. We're no longer merely citizens of, of, of a city like Belfast or in, of a government in Northern Ireland or in the UK or, or whatever happens. We are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're no longer subjects of governments in Northern Ireland or UK. We're first and foremost subjects of the king of kings. And one day soon, that king will return in all his glory and no human government will be able to put up a border to stand against him. Everyone will recognize his authority and bow their knee to him. Jesus alone is king of kings and one day all empires, all empires of man will crumble before him and because of that, we stand firm. I've never been, I'm sure maybe some of you have been to Rome um, to see all these incredible remnants of what was the world's dominant global empire. But that's all it is now, a pile of ruins. Some nice architecture still in place, sure, but it's mostly for tourists to come and pose in front of for selfies. Paul, like Paul who is in prison in the Roman Empire, who has been imprisoned by the Roman Empire, knew that this Roman Empire would fall. He knew it would topple. And so he could say to this church in Philippi, he could say to us, stand firm. Every time you're persecuted, every time you're battered by the elements, every time you fall off your bike and break a rib, get back on, the race isn't over yet. Stand firm. And just as Paul knew that the Roman Empire would end, we know that any empire that comes after or is still to come will not last. Be that the empire of capitalism, of social media, of communism in the East, all empires of human invention will one day end, but the kingdom of God will not end. Brothers and sisters, our king is returning. And he's returning not as a baby in a manger, but as a king on his stallion dressed for war in full glory and he destroys his enemies and establishes his everlasting kingdom. And what does it say? By the power that enables him, uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lonely body to be like his glorious body. Our king is coming He gives us new bodies, no more lockdown bodies, praise Jesus. Never-ending bodies dwelling in a kingdom that never ends. Our king is returning soon, so how are you going to live? Are you going to live like the powers of this world are all that there is? That peer pressure, social pressure is the dominant force in your life? Are you going to be led by the influences of temporary human kingdom? Kingdoms? Or are you going to stand firm, unwavering, trusting God, waiting for the return of our King?
the only one with true and lasting authority who has all things subject to him. Church, this is our challenge. May we never give up. May we follow Christ-like examples and strive to be Christ-like examples to others. May we live in the way of the cross, daily reminding ourselves of the grace in which we stand that was most demonstrated in the death of Jesus. And may we look forward to the coming of our King. Uh, We do every week uh, celebrate the return of Jesus through taking communion. We remember his body broken for us the bread representing his body, the wine representing his blood shed for us. And that act of sacrifice being one that actually uh, promises us a future that we can't even imagine. So if you're a Christian, come take this. Um, the stations are here. If you've know dr- been before, you know the drill. Come take one, bring it back, and uh, know that this is Christ's body broken for you. This is his blood shed for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd ask you to, to abstain from this. Come and speak to me if you don't know who Jesus is, if you want to be introduced to him, um, to the coming king. Uh, would you stand with me as we pray?